Thank you. Uh, first, uh, my great thanks to, uh, to Terry. Uh, I also had the great pleasure of training another University of Texas government faculty member, Scott Wolford. Uh, and my great thanks to Frank Gavin and the Strauss Center for inviting me to give a talk here at the University of Texas. And more broadly, let me say I'm thrilled to see the commitment that the Strauss Center has to thinking about the intersection of political science, public policy, history, and law in trying to understand pressing questions regarding U.S. foreign policy, security studies, and public affairs more generally. So uh, today I'm going to talk about uh, democracy, secrecy, and foreign policy, the intersection of these, of these streams. And I guess the first point I want to make is that Secrecy remains an absolutely essential and contemporary issue for United States foreign policy. Think about some of the things that are going on in the news today. Uh, Bradley Manning was the serviceman who was just convicted for disclosing thousands of pages of classified documents to WikiLeaks, and there's a now movie coming out on Julia Assange. That remains a vital issue for American, American security. Uh, we all know about uh, former NSA contractor Edward Snowden. He's currently hiding in Russia, and the variety of disclosures he made about secret American uh, uh, efforts to collect uh, electron information on electronic communications uh, is still reverberating. Uh, this is a photo of uh, corpses in Syria, and the reason I included this here is that deception is playing a central role in the American debate about whether or not to take uh, military action in Syria. The American public has been very skeptical of the Obama administration's claims about Syrian pos possession of chemical weapons, in be part because of the hangover from the 2003 Iraq War, in which many Americans think that American cl uh, claims of Iraqi possession of WMD uh, were clouded by efforts of, of deception. So our ability to conduct foreign policy today is still affected by alleged efforts of deception which occurred uh, 10 years ago. And my view, my kind of global view, is that to grapple with these or virtually any other contemporary policy problem, including secrecy, issues of secrecy and foreign policy, to do this we need to accurately assess the historical record. Uh, and that's because presidents continue to face similar sets of circumstances and choices. And as we can better understand what happened in the past, that will better help us understand uh, how presidents behave in the future, and then also to give them guidance as to what sorts of actions can best advance uh, American national interests. Okay, so uh, my research has focused on one element of secrecy in foreign policy, which is this, the possibility that an elected leader might use secrecy and deception to lead the United States into a war that the public might otherwise oppose if it were fully informed. Okay? And many think that this describes the dynamic by which the United States got involved in the Vietnam War. Uh, specifically, in August of 1964, there was a naval incident in the Gulf of Tonkin off the coast of Vietnam. And it's widely recognized that the Johnson administration uh, misrepresented the facts around that incident, which then helped contribute to widespread public and congressional support for 
the escalation of U.S. involvement uh, in, in the Vietnam War. Uh, as I noted, many think that there was deception involved in the run-up to the 2003 Iraq War, that the Bush administration used deceptive means to misrepresent the nature of the intelligence connecting uh, Saddam Hussein uh, with weapons of mass dis- uh, destruction and links to terrorism groups. And also, you know, this is connected to the current debate about military action in Syria, as I noted. Now, today, what I want to do is focus on another historical incident, which is the proposition that President uh, Franklin Roosevelt used deception to draw an otherwise reluctant American public into World War II in 1941. So similar to how Johnson used deception to, to push the U.S. into the Vietnam War, there's an argument made that Roosevelt undertook similar actions in 1941. Now, this claim it has been made for decades by a number of respected historians, and uh, if true, it would have a number of disturbing implications. One is, is that it would cast a, a very dark shadow on one of America's most respected presidents, and also would cast American participation in the so-called Good War, World War II, in a different light. Uh, also, perhaps more importantly, the 1941 case, along with other important cases like the Gulf of Tonkin and the Iraq War, will help us get a broader picture of how and whether presidents use deception to pull the country into wars they might otherwise avoid. Now, today I'm going to make uh, two arguments. I'm going to make a narrow argument and a general argument. The narrow argument I'm going to make, a narrower historical argument, uh, is that Roosevelt's critics are mostly incorrect and that Roosevelt did not engage in substantial deception in 1941 uh, in bringing the U.S. into war. And in fact, Roosevelt was, in my uh, view, reasonably transparent in engaging the public, explaining what he was doing, explaining the nature of the German and Japanese threat, and so forth. That's the narrower point. And the broader point I want to make, building on the narrower point, is that it's probably harder than we might fear for leaders to do unpopular, costly things secretly. Okay? Uh, many of us are cynical about the nature of the Oval Office, the nature of the presidency. Uh, we feel like that the president is, you know, uh, you know, Oz behind the curtain pulling these puppet strings, uh, manipulating intelligence, manipulating public opinion, and so forth and that makes us cynical about the nature of the democratic process. And the general argument I'm going to make today is to push against that a little bit to say that these criticisms of the democratic process are overblown. There are instances of presidential deception, but they may not be as frequent as we might think. And specifically, there are certain mechanisms within democracy that facilitate this oversight, most most, uh, notably a free press, the separation of powers, and uh, frequent elections. And so presidents avoid deception not because they're saintly, but because they fear the electoral consequences of engaging in deception and then having this deception um, exposed. Okay, so to kind of uh, to get into these arguments, let me first talk about uh, two fundamental and related dilemmas that democracies face. Okay. The first dilemma I want to talk about is this, that some foreign policy actions 
are going to be more effective if they are carried out secretly. The dilemma being that, you know, purely from a democratic norms point of view, uh, we would like everything the government does to be completely transparent and every decision to take advantage of as open debate as possible. But the dilemma is there are some things where if you have open debate about it, it's not going to work. Okay? I mean, one example is the location of the 1944 D-Day landing, where obviously a big part of what made this successful was deceiving Nazi Germany about where that landing was going to be. If we had, you know, had a debate about whether or not the landing should be at Normandy or Calais, and then the Congress votes to have it at Normandy, it's, the landing is going to be a failure. Uh, another example is the 1950 uh, American amphibious landing at Incheon in South Korea. That was a success because it was secret, the location of the landing. Uh, more recently, the, the, the 2011 raid on Osama bin Laden's compound in Pakistan, that only works because it's a very closely kept secret. Right? So this is one dilemma that at least some of the time, for op- military operational reasons, you have to keep things secret for them to work. Okay, now the second dilemma, and here we have our old friend Homer Simpson, uh, is that the argument is made that a president might feel like he or she needs to do something secretly to protect the country, but the problem is that the average voter, you know, Bart Simpson, is underinformed and unreliable. Okay, that if you allow the public to decide what kind of foreign policy we should have, even if they're completely informed, they're not sufficiently equipped or sufficiently motivated to come to the right conclusions. Okay? And, so, and this is a long-standing uh, so-called realist critique of public opinion. Uh, people like George Kennan and uh, Walter Littman and Hans Morgenthau have been making this argument for decades that the public can't be trusted. So the dilemma is that on the one hand, you'd like to trust the public, But the dilemma is if you do so, the public might make the wrong choice. So the proposition is that maybe sometimes what you have to, the president has to do is engage in secrecy and deception to fool the public into going along with what we actually need to do, which might not be what the public would want to do. All right. Now, although this first dilemma is tremendously interesting and important, today I'm going to talk about this second dilemma, okay, which is... When does the pub, when does the government uh, engage in this kind of deception uh, in order to bring along a public that maybe it doesn't trust? Right? And the truly disturbing scenario, as described, is a president who wants war, but the public is hesitant, and the president then engages in a mixture of secrecy and deception to bring the U.S. into war under false pretenses. Now, before we get into the 1941 case, let me talk about the, the Gulf of Tonkin incident uh, uh, very briefly. So, uh, in 1964, President Lyndon Johnson uh, wants greater U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War for a variety of reasons, uh, and he feels like that public and congressional support for the level of involvement he wants isn't at the same place, that they're not as far along in terms of supporting U.S. involvement um, as he would like. Now, Long story short, there are some naval clashes off the coast of North Vietnam in a place called the Gulf of Tonkin. And the Johnson administration uh, misrepresented the facts surrounding this incident in making the argument to the Congress and to the American public as to why the United States needs to become involved in the Vietnam War. 
And specifically, the nature of the misrepresentation was exaggerating the extent of North Vietnamese hostility, to make a long story short. So Johnson sort of takes this event, he exaggerates North Vietnamese hostility, he convinces the American Congress that we need to respond to protect our ally South Vietnam, North Vietnam is an aggressive threat. This then leads to the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which opens the door to American participation in the Vietnam War. Okay, uh, this, uh, this is one of the vessels involved, the USS Maddox, and of course this is uh, 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 President Johnson, who everyone here is more than familiar with, I'm sure. Uh, and then when the facts were exposed about the true nature of the Gulf of Tonkin incident some years later, it was widely seen that America entered the Vietnam War under false pretenses. And this was, you know, a real political bombshell because, of course, the Vietnam War went much more poorly than we thought it was going to go, that we, you know, sacrificed nearly 60,000 American lives, billions of dollars, and we still couldn't satisfy, we still couldn't achieve the basic goal of stabilizing South Vietnam, all based on a set of lies. Okay, so now, uh, if you'll indulge me, uh, I want to talk about another American president facing important choices regarding deception and war. And I say indulge me, I want to I play a little, a little game with you guys. This is the game. The game is who am I? All right? Here's the game. Uh, I am a U.S. president facing a brutal, murderous dictator. Uh, this dictator, he runs a country that has invaded its neighbors. The U.S. has fought this country before. The country poses a threat not so much to the U.S. homeland but to important U.S. allies. The president doesn't trust the international community or other nations to contain the threat. Uh, the president is more inclined to go to war than the public or the Congress. And finally, just for fun, it's a president who governed a large state. He never served in Congress. He never served in combat. And he's related to another U.S. president. And also for fun, the dictator sports an ominous mustache. All right. So some of you might think I'm talking about George Bush and the dictator Saddam Hussein, but I'm actually talking about Franklin Roosevelt and the ominously mustachioed Adolf Hitler. Okay? Uh, and specifically, I want to focus on American entry into World War II in 1941. And the big question is, did Roosevelt use deception to bring a reluctant American public into World War II under false uh, pretenses. And I'm focusing on this case as the subject of, uh, of my own research. And, of course, it's important, as I mentioned. All right, so let's go back to 1940. Uh, uh, 1940, uh, things look very grim for uh, the United States and Britain in particular. Uh, France falls, of course, in June of 1940. And during this time period, Roosevelt is becoming increasingly concerned that Britain itself might be defeated and he began to think about ways for the United States to offer aid to Britain. Now, at the time, Roosevelt is more eager to aid Britain than were many Americans. He's more eager to get involved in a variety of different ways than many Americans are. Now, since the late, since the late 1940s, after the war, a number of scholars have argued that this gets at the second you know, secrecy, dilemma, dece uh, secrecy deception dilemma. Okay, that Roosevelt felt like the American national interest demanded American involvement to aid Britain and fight Germany. But the public 
uh, it's the Homer Simpson public, that they don't understand the nature of the threat. And so Roosevelt decides to engage in a variety of measures of secrecy and deception in order to basically drag the United States into war under uh, false pretenses, both against Germany and Japan. Okay? So that's kind of the nature of, of the conspiracy argument. And the general picture is that Roosevelt is able to control public opinion rather than the other way, way round of the public controlling the president, which is the way democracy is supposed to work. The president's supposed to represent the will of the people. So this is an argument which, if true, is a, is a, is a scathing indictment of you know, the integrity of the democratic process in the United States you know, for one of the most important decisions that we make, a decision to go to war against uh, uh, major powers. Okay, so first, let's talk about this kind of conspiracy argument as applied to Germany. So, all right, it's 1941, and there are an increasing number of cargo ships going back and forth across the Atlantic, carrying goods from North America to Britain. These goods, especially food, are critical for keeping the British war effort going. So here's some pictures of, of cargo vessels. Germany, uh, the, U- the U.S. is not yet in the war. Germany is using submarines to try to sink these vessels in order to starve Britain out of the war. Okay? Uh, and this was, a various theor- this was a very serious threat to Britain. Uh, Churchill said that the Battle of the Atlantic was the only thing that ever frightened me. Okay, so even Churchill's very uh, gravely concerned about the submarine threat. Okay, now most people in the U.S. want to do at least something to help Britain. They are willing to support commerce and trade with Britain. Okay, but the problem is you need to have naval protection, military protection of these cargo ships, otherwise they're sitting ducks for the German submarines. Okay. Now, on this point, some Americans are hesitant or of mixed opinion about whether or not we should take additional steps and deploy the U.S. Navy in the Atlantic Ocean to protect these cargo ships from the German submarines. And the reason people are hesitant is because they're concerned that deploying the U.S. Navy in such a way might lead to armed conflict with German submarines, and those kinds of naval clashes might then bring the U.S. into war with Germany. Okay, now the conspiracy argument is that this is what Roosevelt did. Roosevelt told the U.S. public that American naval actions in the Atlantic were restrained, that we were holding back on deploying the U.S. Navy, but that in reality, Roosevelt had secretly approved a much more aggressive naval policy, more aggressively deploying American destroyers and other vessels to protect uh, these cargo ships, because what Roosevelt was trying to do, he was trying to provoke just this kind of naval incident between U.S. ships and submarines, hoping there'd be this this kind of clash, which would then enrage American public opinion, pushing the U.S. into war, right? And part of the logic behind the conspiracy argument is that this was a big part of the process by which the U.S. got involved in World War I, where there were a number of German submarines sinking American vessels, it led to American outrage, which then you know, allowed Wilson to declare war on Germany in April of 1917. The conspiracy argument is that Roosevelt is basically trying to do the same thing, trying to engineer secretly these naval clashes. That'll help bring the U.S. into war with Germany, and that'll allow Roosevelt to accomplish his ultimate goal, which is to save Britain from Nazi Germany. 
Okay, that's the conspiracy argument. My argument is that the evidence indicates that Roosevelt is actually being reasonably transparent about what he's doing uh, and that he is generally guided by public opinion. He understands public opinion. He tries not to get too far ahead of public opinion. And in a few instances, he had the opportunity to push farther but held back because he was concerned that if his efforts were exposed, it would have negative political consequences. There would be a political backlash against him. Okay. Now, the big picture is that Roosevelt is very concerned about keeping U.S. government policy in line with public opinion. He's very concerned about getting too far ahead of public opinion. And one of the reasons is that it's a very, there is a very real, potentially dangerous isolationist block in Congress and the public more generally. That is, there are you know, politicians and public figures who are saying the United States needs to stay out of the war, needs to not get involved with Germany, and, he, and Roosevelt knows that if he moves too aggressively, then that will uh, uh, give the isolationists a lot of um, political advantage, and they'll be able to undercut his support for getting the U.S. involved. Okay? So, here are some of these isolationists. Uh, this is uh, Charles Lindbergh, a notorious you know, pro-German isolationist who made a number of pro-German anti-Semitic speeches up through uh, fall of 1941. Uh, this is uh, Father Coughlin, who had an anti-Semitic isolationist radio show uh, in the 1930s. And this is Senator William Bora uh, from the great state of Idaho, who was one of the more outspoken isolationists in the U.S. Congress. Okay? Now, Roosevelt knows that, you know, this is a very real threat, you know, that there's very, you know, there's very kind of tepid support for aggressive U.S. involvement in the war in Europe. Uh, one piece of evidence for, you know, the nature of this threat, in August of 1941, there was a vote in Congress on extending the military draft, and that vote passes by a, that vote passes by a single vote, okay? So there's a very fragile majority even being willing to support ongoing American military uh, preparedness, never mind actually declaring war. Okay? One other point, at this point in U.S. history, when the U.S. entered war, it did so through a formal congressional declaration of war. We were not yet in the current period of U.S. history where the United States enters wars without congressional declaration, as happened you know, in Korea and Vietnam and the Gulf War. At this point, Congress still declared war. So Roosevelt knows that if he enrages the isolationists, he won't have the votes to declare war uh, when it comes to that point. Okay, so one question is, how does FDR interact with public uh, opinion and isolationist sentiment? Uh, he, try, he addresses public opinion through the radio addresses. Remember, this is pre-TV, pre-Internet. He has so-called uh, fireside chats where he openly explains his sense of the threat posed by Nazi Germany, uh, the dire straits that Britain is in, and the critical importance of the U.S. aiding Britain. The U.S. does offer uh, increasing naval protection uh, to the Atlantic convoys in 1941, but these are policies that Roosevelt makes public and publicly defends. There's very little going on underneath the table, as it were. There are some in the administration who urge Roosevelt to push the edge of the envelope, but he decides not to in part because he knows that if it gets exposed, then it'll create a real problem. One specific example, 
the largest ship in the German Navy is a super battleship called the Bismarck. And uh, the Germans dispatched this ship into the Atlantic in 1941. At one point, it was threatening to come close to U.S. territorial waters. They thought it might enter the Caribbean. Some in the Navy suggested that the U.S. Navy try to intercept the Bismarck. And Roosevelt says, we can't do that. And if I did that, I might get impeached. So he's very aware of the political constraints he faces. Okay. Now, that being said, even with these constraints, there are a number of clashes between U.S. vessels and German submarines in 1941, often between U.S. flagged cargo ships and German submarines. And contrary to the conspiracy claim, even when these uh, clashes happen, Roosevelt shies away from using these events to fan the flames of war. Now, there's one exception, and I'll call it an exception that proves the rule. In October of 1941, there is a clash between uh, a U.S. destroyer, the Greer, and a German submarine in the North Atlantic. No ships were sunk, but some, uh, some torpedoes were fired and death charges were fired. Initially, uh, Roosevelt presents an incomplete uh, uh, portrayal uh, of what actually uh, happened during this, during this um, uh, incident. And right off the bat, the critics say, well, this is exactly like the Gulf of Tonkin incident, where Johnson misrepresents what happened in the Gulf of Tonkin incident, and it had these consequences. The difference here is that immediately after Roosevelt gives his speech explaining what happened with some uh, incomplete representation of the facts, uh, within two weeks, he has a conversation with one of his admirals, and he instructs his admirals to give a complete portrayal of what happened in the congressional invest- investigation which followed. And to me, that's very interesting because it's in stark contrast to President Johnson, who gave direct instruction to his secretary, uh, Robert McNamara, uh, to lie to Congress about the f- specifics of Gulf of Tonkin. So, in short, Roosevelt, he makes his policies public, his policies are popular, and he shies away from secret deceptive actions in the Atlantic. Okay, I want to talk about Japan next. Uh, Of course, Japan is engaging in a war of empire in in Asia back through the 1930s. It has a substantial empire as of 1940. American opposition to the Japanese bid for empire has been growing for years. And in July of 1941, the Roosevelt administration imposes trade sanctions on Japan in reaction to Japan's bid for empire. And a big part of these sanctions was a ban on the export of American oil to Japan. Okay, the conspiracy argument uh, is is the following, that Roosevelt portrayed the oil sanctions as limited in nature, making the argument that we're imposing limited sanctions on Japan, it's not going to lead to war. But secretly, Roosevelt knew that the oil sanctions were a complete ban on the sale of oil to Japan, and he knew that doing so would cause Japan to attack, uh, to, to go to war. Okay? So again, this is an example of American policy is more aggressive than the public thinks it is, and the president is deliberately making it more aggressive to provoke the other side into attacking, which will then be a point of a way for the U.S. to get involved in war with Japan. And the reason Roosevelt wants to get involved in war with Japan is because he knows that Germany and Japan are allies, 
Once the U.S. gets involved with war with Japan, it'll then allow us to go to war with Germany, and then we'll be able to save Britain. Okay, all right, so my argument, that's the conspiracy argument, okay? And my argument is that the evidence doesn't support this set of claims, okay? And I apologize for lots of text on this slide. Um, In general, there's even in the summer of 1941 growing public support both for taking a hard line on Japan, even at the risk of war with Japan. Okay? As I said, uh, Americans are becoming increasingly fed up with uh, the Japanese war uh, for empire, and they are increasingly willing to take a stand to contain, the Japanese, uh, to contain Japan. And we've got a whole bunch of polls like these, uh, which say that a majority or a plurality of Americans are willing to take a hard line on Japan even at the risk of provoking war. Okay? So Americans are not so peace-loving at this point that they're willing to allow Japan to have its empire in Asia in order to buy peace at any price. To the contrary, you know, Americans are willing to stand up for Japan. Now, interestingly, Americans are particularly supportive of, uh, of ending oil exports to Japan. And the reason is that we were sending oil to Japan in the context of oil shortages within the United States. So many Americans said, why are we exporting this rare, relatively rare or scarce, I should say, invaluable commodity to Japan uh, when we need it at home? Okay. And certainly, you know, even before the July sanctions, Congress had called for sanctions many times. And even some of Roosevelt's political opponents, such as uh, the 1940 Republican presidential nominee Wendell Wilkie and the arch-isolationist Senator Burton Wheeler, they support sanctions. So right off the bat, you know, the, the hard line that the Roosevelt administration is taking, it's popular with the American public, with the American Congress. Now, one specific claim that conspiracy theorists make is that you know, Roosevelt let the public believe that the sanctions were limited, but he knew that, in fact, they were actually complete sanctions. However, and here I've got just some headlines from you know, the leading newspapers of the day, that when the sanctions were announced, they were framed by the U.S. media media as being total sanctions. And Roosevelt himself openly warned the public that if we engage in sanctions, uh, it risked war. Now, one last point is that the conspiracy theorists claim that Roosevelt wanted war with Japan to get into the war with Germany. But there is a lot of evidence indicating that Roosevelt wanted to avoid or at least delay war with Japan because he feared having to fight Germany and Japan at the same time, at least in 1941. He was fearful that at that point, the United States military was insufficiently mobilized. We didn't have the assets to fight Germany and Japan at the same time. So he wanted to to delay war with Japan. So in short, uh, in 1941, the American public supports taking a hard line on, uh, on Japan, even one that risks war. They support sanctions to do so. They understand that the July sanctions are comprehensive, and Roosevelt is explaining them uh, as comprehensive. Now, in terms of the big picture, 1941 is a historical episode in which the president's actions are consistent with public opinion. Uh, The president publicly explains what he was doing. And in some instances, on the Germany case in particular, the president rejects opportunities to deceive the public in order to get them to support policies they might otherwise oppose. Okay? So this is a case which is 
more consistent with sort of the way the democratic processes are supposed to work and less consistent with a very cynical view that the American president has the ability to manipulate media, manipulate information, and manipulate public opinion. Now, that being said, I'm certainly not you know, trying to convince you that the president never tries to shape public opinion or you know, conceal matters from the public. And we all can certainly think of lots of examples of presidential deception, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, uh, secretly funneling funds to the uh, Nicaraguan Contras in the 1980s, uh, the Iraq War, and so on and so forth. Okay? But one thing that I want you to come away with is that there are examples in which you know, the democratic process seems to be functioning more effectively. This is one case. Another case I'll point out to you is American entry into World War I, uh, where there President Woodrow Wilson was very careful about not trying to get ahead of American public opinion about what to do about Germany. So he you know, did not try to exploit events like the seeking of the Lusitania and the Sussex to say Germany is this gigantic threat and we have to go to war. He was very careful about tracking where American public opinion went. Uh, similarly, in 1997, when the Clinton administration was confronting an increasingly belligerent Iraq, one Clinton cabinet member suggested we, sh- we could create a context for going to war with Iraq if we flew a reconnaissance plane close enough to Iraqi air defenses to get shot down, we would allow the plane to get shot down, and then we'd have the war that we wanted, and that suggestion went nowhere. Okay, so let me wrap up with some final thoughts. Okay, so uh, one kind of important caveat to my argument that the democratic process maybe works better than some cynics might believe is that the whole, you know, the, 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 the motor of the argument is that the president is concerned that if he tries to deceive, those, de- those deception attempts will be exposed and he'll suffer political consequences. Okay? One problem with that argument is that sometimes ex- you know, exposure of deception may happen, but it may take too long. Okay? Eventually, the facts of the Gulf of Tonkin incident came out, but they came out after Johnson was out of office. Okay. Uh, eventually, the, you know, we got a better sense of the real nature of Iraqi WMD and Iraqi links to al-Qaeda or lack of links to al-Qaeda, but that didn't occur until after Bush was re-elected in 2004. Okay. So even if the process does expose deception, if it, if, it, if it takes too long in terms of lasting another election cycle, presidents might not be deterred. Okay. Um, another, another kind of question I want to get at is this, you know, we don't really have a good understanding of when presidents, when presidents deceive and when they don't deceive. You know, we notice that sometimes they do and sometimes they don't, but we don't really understand, you know, why that's the case. Why does Johnson have this elaborate deception and why does Roosevelt not try to deceive? Now, here I don't, unfortunately, have any, you know, terribly satisfying answers. One point I'll make is that sometimes there are idiosyncratic factors that can make deception easier or harder. So, for example, in 1941, one reason that Roosevelt was pretty confident he would not be able to deceive the American public about what was going on in, in, the, in the Atlantic Ocean was that the sailors on the, on the American cargo ships were coming ashore to East Coast ports after their voyages and talking about the incidents to newspaper reporters. So East Coast newspapers were reporting these variety of naval clashes 
from firsthand reports, and, and Roosevelt knew he wouldn't be able to contain that. Similarly, in World War I, Wilson knew he wouldn't be able to manipulate the details of sinkings of American vessels like the Lusitania because most of the information coming from those events was coming from the media, not from government sources. Now, in contrast, Johnson found it easier to conceal the true details of the 1964 Gulf of Tonkin incident because there was no one around to observe it. It happened between naval vessels. This is before there are satellites. There's no satellite images to sort for independent people to figure out what's going on. And he had to control a relatively small number of people in his administration to make sure that, you know, his version of the facts came out. Similarly, similarly in 2002 and 2003, you know, the Bush administration relied on largely classified internal intelligence estimates on Iraqi WMD and ties to terrorist groups, uh, things which were not made public and, you know, Assuming you think that Vice President Cheney was an evil genius trying to, trying to manipulate information and deceive the public, they were more confident that it would not be, would not be exposed. Okay. Now, the good news uh, going forward in the 21st century is that technology may make secrecy and deception more difficult. Uh, for example, analysts outside of government can use Google Earth and satellite technology to craft their own assessments of important foreign policy issues. Uh, let me give you one example. Uh, in, uh, in, in September, just last month, scholars at Johns Hopkins, uh, working outside the government, used commercial satellite images of North Korean nuclear facilities uh, to argue that North Korea was restarting a dormant nuclear reactor. So they took this photo and they said, look from this photo, uh, there's steam venting from this building, which is next to a 5-megawatt reactor. And so they said, okay, this is evidence that North, North Korea is restarting its, uh, its nuclear weapons program. Okay, So this is maybe some evidence that, at least in some instances, it may be more difficult for presidents to control the flow of information and deceive uh, going forward. Okay. Last point I want to get at is this. This gets back to the first dilemma. When should the president be able to act secretly, uh, if not uh, deceptively? Okay. Now, again, there are you know, legitimate circumstances in which there needs to be secrecy to protect uh, intelligence sources and to protect military operations. But this, uh, in my view, gets at sort of this fundamental democratic dilemma, right? I mean, the foundational assumption of democracy, going back to, to the Enlightenment, is that individuals are fundamentally rational and that reasoned discussion by a larger number of people is more likely to help generate truthful conclusions. And so some people, like John Stuart Mill, talk about this as the marketplace of ideas, that if you have people, you know, have open debate about policy issues, evaluate the evidence, you're more likely to reach the, reach the right conclusion. That's why we have you know, Congress, that's why we have a free press, that's why we have elections, okay? Uh, and so the dilemma is how do you balance how much secrecy you need on the one hand without sacrificing the marketplace of ideas, assuming the marketplace of ideas is this engine of producing good policy outcomes, okay? And my own thoughts are that, you know, the benefits of secrecy are sometimes exaggerated. One way to think about this is that, you know, if you think about, you know, the span of U.S. history in the 20th century, some of our biggest foreign policy disasters occurred in the context of secret decision-making, okay? The Bay of Pigs invasion, 1961, 
That's a, a secret decision. The 1964 escalation of the Vietnam War, that happens in the context of deception about the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Uh, this decision to funnel weapons to the Nicaraguan Contras through Iran, that happens in secrecy and it's a foreign policy mess. And then arguably the 2003 invasion of, uh, of Iraq, which I think most people view as occurring in error, probably occurred in the context of at least some deception, though, though we're not 100% certain. So going forward, you know, this is the balance that we all have to try to manage. And you know, the last point I want to leave you with is that you know, seek, the advantages of secrecy may be exaggerated, and the benefits of open debate in the marketplace of ideas may be underappreciated. And I thank you for your attention. signal to me and I'll write your name down. And we especially encourage questions and comments from the students in the audience. Do you want to just call on people? Uh, I'll take it Go ahead. You can call on people. Go ahead. present the argument that says the isolationists also were in favor of sanctions. And I guess I don't understand how that helps your argument um, in the sense that um, uh, the isolationists being in favor of sanctions would, you know, maybe, maybe true, may have just made it incrementally easier for Roosevelt to deceive because he was doing a policy that they wanted to be done anyway, even if he did it for totally different intentional reasons. And in particular, the isolationists believed that if we traded less with Japan, we would be less likely. They thought that the result was of sanctions was not to cause us to go into war, mm -hmm. but to make us less likely to go into war, um, either because they thought the sanctions would change Chinese or Japanese behavior in China, or that the sanctions would make us not responsible. Like they, the old isolationists were basically head in the sand people. Like we don't want to deal with the rest of the world and so we just don't have to. So I just, how did that help your argument? And um, kind of a, a similar thing when you were um, uh, talking about the, in the Atlantic case, mm -hmm. the, uh, the sailors coming off the ships, you know, it would be hard to deceive the public because sailors coming off the ships uh, in East Coast ports told newspapers about the incidents. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, if the strategic idea that Roosevelt had was to precipitate an incident because that would piss off the Americans and get us into the war, he should be in favor of the sailors leaking the information. Mm -hmm. right? Because when there's an incident and the sailors come back and say, oh my god, I was so scared the Germans were shooting at me, that helps him get into the war. Right, right. So help me with the mechanism. Yeah, thanks. It's both very good questions. Let me talk about the Japan question first. I mean, the broader point I'm making is that the conspiracy argument sort of assumes that there's American reluctance to support uh, sanctions, or public reluctance to support sanctions, especially comprehensive sanctions, 
because uh, they don't want it to lead to war. And so the broad argument I'm making is that, is that virtually every el significant element of the American body politic is supportive of sanctions. So the internationalist wing of the Republican Party is supportive. The, uh, the business community is supportive. Congress is supportive. And the isolationists are, are supportive. Um, some of them are supportive for a variety of reasons, um, but I think it's fair to say that even those that wanted to stay out of war were still concerned about the Japanese bid for, for empire in China. Um, but but the, broad, the, the broad point is that, you know, it would be, in my view, inaccurate to claim that there was this hesitance about sanctions and the only way that Roosevelt was able to get the American public on board was by explaining that, well, these are just limited sanctions, so we're going to you know, avoid war. Uh, on the Atlantic side, I think that the concern that Roosevelt would have would be something like that he would give a particular portrayal of what actually occurred, and the sailors would come back and say that's not really what occurred. Uh, in particular, it might be things like which side fired first. Okay, so the nightmare, the nightmare scenario, I guess. You have a U.S. destroyer approach a German sub, which is getting near a cargo ship, and the destroyer fires first at the sub. Okay, this is observed by the, the seamen on the, car, on the cargo ship. Roosevelt says the sub fired first, and the, and the guys in the cargo ship say, no, 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 we fired, you know, we fired first. And kind of the, the counterfactual or the, that you might think about is, what if sailors on board like the Maddox and the other vessels in the Gulf of Tonkin had that kind of access to U.S. media? And they were able to say, no, there really wasn't a second attack. And, oh, by the way, didn't you know that we were engaging in these special forces operations off the course of North Vietnam? So the counterfactual is, if those sailors had had the media access that the commercial sailors did in 1941, then you know, maybe uh, Johnson would have thought twice about giving a deceptive portrayal. Um, that's a that's a very good question. I mean, I think that you can. I think this doesn't directly answer your question, but I think some of the secret escalation of the Vietnam War in 1970, you know, bombing of Cambodia and so forth, is an example of actions that are taking during wartime that were probably out of step with the American public. It's not exactly what you're what you're getting at. Um, and I don't know. I don't know. Frank, you're the historian. I'm looking at you. Um, Can you think of any other episodes? One of my questions has to do with the, how Kennedy used deception in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm -hmm. So that isn't quite a war, and it's sort of somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. He mm -hmm. actually lies about the Jupiter uh, missile squad mm -hmm. in the crisis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know if some of the stuff with uh, how the portrayal of what an invasion of Japan would look like in terms of using the atomic bomb, that 
You mean that Truman was exaggerating casualty estimates? Yeah, there's a debate about that. So. Yeah, I mean, for that, I would say that U.S. public opinion was so utterly thirsty for Japanese blood that, and the support for the use of the atomic bomb was so widespread. I mean, I don't think he really even had to tell a story to get people to go along with using the super weapon. No one really understood. Um, so... How about uh, Roosevelt's reluctance to attack the Germans when he was advised of the, uh, the Jews being annihilated? That took place, I think, about 41. Mm-hmm. And he was, when he was advised by the Secretary of Treasury, mm-hmm. he didn't, but he did not want to take action then, mm-hmm. even though he was aware of the, of the basically the early part of the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Well, my... Uh, Mm-hmm. Well, my view, I mean, I don't know if he was, and correct me if I'm wrong, sir, but I don't think he was misrepresenting the facts that he knew about the Holocaust to the public, or would you say that he, he knew things about the Holocaust and deliberately didn't release them to the public? In, in reference to his question. Yeah, yeah, I understand that, yeah. That, that he had information. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was fairly verifiable, mm-hmm. but he, he did not want to take action. Mm-hmm. He did not want to announce it because mm-hmm. he did not believe we were ready mm-hmm. to attack. Uh, the idea was to attack those camps. Right. And his, my understanding is Roosevelt says, no, we're not ready for that yet. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it also was him making the, you know, the very difficult decision that he wanted to channel American bombing assets to attacking German factories rather than the concentration Absolutely. camps. So, I mean, and, and he kept that back. He kept that information. Yeah, yeah, and 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 let me just say, as a way to qualify, you know, my general argument is that I, I'm I'm of not making the argument that presidents are always, you know, completely open about every element of policy, especially military policy, and it, some of the times there are egregious acts of deception, uh, but my point is to to put maybe push against some of the cynicism that I saw, especially in the debate about Syria, you know, where many people were just so openly skeptical of administration claims about Syrian chemical weapons as sort of a hangover following what, what occurred in Iraq. And so I guess part of what I'm trying to do here is to make the argument that at least some of the time uh, we can trust what the president says, at least in broad outlines. Um, Mm-hmm. That, you know, a lot of times we, uh, we see conception on the policy and a lot of foreign policy failures. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if, if it's not the case that a lot of times the reason we find out about deception is because of foreign policy failures. Mm-hmm. So that we have like mission, you know, fact-finding missions that eventually find out that, you know, this was information that was misconstrued and so mm-hmm. I was actually curious if you have, I mean, uh, Frank already mentioned one example of deception that had a very fortunate outcome, right? The use of mm-hmm. missiles. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if um, how do we find out about the foreign policy successes that mm-hmm. had to do with deception besides that one? Do you know of any? And I, yeah, I mean, in terms, if you, fr- I mean, you're, you're really crafting this very nicely as a real social science question, which is, you know, um, how do we get an accurate count of everything that occurred and let's make sure we have all the cases of 
deception failure, deception success, no deception failure, no deception success, which is exactly the right way to go in terms of framing this in a rigorous social science framework. So, you know, one, you know, kind of simple point I would make is that making those kinds of tabulations in sort of a quantitative counting basis is sort of difficult because it's hard to, like, isolate discrete episodes and so forth. Um, you know, I would say that, in my view, you know, at, I think we can look at a number of instances of American covert action during the Cold War, uh, things which occurred in secrecy or deception, which in hindsight were probably not in the advancement of American national interests, undermining a variety of, you know, uh, popular leftist governments in South America, actions which backfired or left or led to authoritarian governments taking power and so forth. Um, so I, I, for one, am, you know, am somewhat critical of the success rate of American covert action. And that's an example of policies which are taken without sufficient public or congressional check, you know, which in my view, their success rate leaves something to be, leaves something to be desired. Um, so that might be one sort of category of examples. Um, I mean, there are some other examples, like in the 1980s, there was probably exaggeration of the nature of the Soviet military threat. Um, which perhaps led to some misguided U.S. defense procurement policies based on, again, an exaggerated threat. Um, that might be another example. I was thinking about, in terms of pro making it sound like we're really, um, you know, succeeding in post-conflict um, situations, I was just thinking about the way that the Bush administration used metrics, for example, saying that, oh, we pay this many of the security forces, and it's like, the number was right, the qualitative degrees you couldn't even tell. So I think in that way you can say that misrepresentation of that was a big task. Yeah, I mean, that, that gets into a different area, but important area, which is how do you measure success? And the other very good example of this is, is the Vietnam War, in which the Johnson administration was focusing on body count of, you know, how many communists are, are we killing? And, you know, counterinsurgency theory tells us that's really not the right metric to look at, okay? And certainly in the post-2003 Iraq war environment, there are all these debates about, you know, are things getting better or worse? What metrics do you point, point to and so forth? Um, yeah, well, so I wonder if, um, as I look at your analysis, uh, so we've got categories, it seems two categories as the way it's been set up, which is uh, presidents who know the truth about a situation and then are honest with the American people, even if it's a little artful, let's say, and FDR would fit in that. And I, I buy your analysis of FDR. I, I, don't, mm -hmm. I don't buy the conspiracy theories. And then the other category of presidents who know the truth about something and then intentionally deceive, and say LBJ and uh, Gulf of Tonkin is a classic case. Um, and mm -hmm. then as I was listening on where you would put the Bush administration in this, it sounds like you were hedging a little bit. You were uh, unclear yourself. Yep. I wonder if we need a third category of presidents who self-deceive. Mm -hmm. It's just confirmation bias. Um, yep. And well, those of you know, I worked for President Bush, and I, I you know, think he's, he's a wonderful man. I think mm -hmm. you could say that some of this was, was going on there as well. Mm -hmm. But I would put McKinley and the Maine in the same category. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, I don't think he intentionally deceived about who blew up the Maine. I think that, you know, he was suspicious of Spaniards already, uh, was feeling some public, uh, you know, support for, for intervening. And then the Maine blows up, mm -hmm. and uh, that confirms his predisposition to think that the, the Spanish were, were behind that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we still don't quite know what happened, but now it right. looks like it was, it was more innocent. But with, with Iraq WMD, I mean, I think it you know, bears recalling that, you know, not only did Bush think they had uh, <coughs> this 
Saddam Hussein had WMD. Every other major intelligence service had thought he had WMD. Most people in Congress thought he had WMD. Mm -hmm. That's because Saddam Hussein wanted everyone to think he had WMD. Mm -hmm. And the debate was wasn't so much does he have WMD or not, but rather we all agree, you know, all the quotes here, we all agree he has WMD. The question is do we invade or not? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I think, so I, I, I would not put that in the category of presidential deception if we define deception as knowing the truth and intentionally lying about it, but rather maybe uh, a category of a president who thinks something is true and then is self-deceived. And, yep. and then, you know, all the erroneous decisions follow. Yeah, I mean, I, you definitely picked up on my hedging. And my hedging is because the run-up to that war was, pro was um, there's a lot of moving parts, yeah. especially within the administration, within the various uh, elements of the administration and for information flows and so forth. And my view is we're not really going to know what happened until there's full declassification in another, what, 20 years or so. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm, I'm really kind of hesitant to draw any firm conclusions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for me, I think what we do know, that there are enough instances of what look like deception by somebody in the administration uh, that, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little, I think I'm a little bit more, more cynical or suspicious than you are. Um, but I do, but that being said, I do agree with the drift of your argument that there probably is an important psychological component in the sense of seeing what you expect to see and so forth. Because the nature of intelligence is, is just a whole palette of shades of gray. And what you're trying to do is to try to put the shades of gray together to figure out what's going on. So you never actually have the kind of smoking gun evidence you'd like, but you have to you know, do the best with what you have. And that's when psychological biases are likely to be most uh, likely most powerful. So what, what, were you in the White House or in? Yeah, I was at the state in the Okay, okay. Um, so anyway, I mean, we'll know more in 20 years, more and more than we know now. Mm -hmm. How do you, how 
How should I think about that? How do you wrestle with that, the linkage between the two? Yeah, I mean, well, the, to get at kind of the, the narrow question, which is the nature of the, the evidence, you know, I mean, Mark Trachtenberg and John Schusler and the conspiracy theorists, I mean, they point to, you know, a handful of private comments made in which sort of allude to, you know, this will enable us a way to get into the war with Germany if we get into war with Japan and these kinds of things. And then on, on my side of the ledger, you know, I, I point to other evidence indicating that they're very concerned about finite American assets, that they don't have enough naval assets to fight, you know, wars in both the Atlantic and the Pacific. And then the other strategic concern they're, they're, they're worried about is the possibility of if the U.S. goes to war with Japan, then that might cause Japan to declare war on the Soviet Union. And if that happens, then that increases the likelihood that, Germ- that the Soviets would be defeated by a combined German-Japanese force. And Roosevelt thinks that if that happened, that would be a complete disaster if the Soviets fell. So these are all kind of strategic reasons why he would rather have not have go to war with Japan. Um, so there's that. Um, as far as, you know, what was his vision for actually how are we going to eventually get into war with Germany, I don't really know. I mean, part of the problem is that Roosevelt doesn't leave a diary, and, I mean, as you know, he just kind of talks about these things differently in different places. And, you know, the conspiracy, you know, the evidence for, for the conspiracy theory is there in part because, you know, he makes these kind of offhand comments which can be kind of interpreted in a different way. But it's not like he sits down and says, this is the, this is the map by how we're going to get into war with Germany. So, I mean, I don't know. Do you, do you have any no, sense I'm of this? Or? Because Will knows working on Truman, and as I know working on Nixon, you can do anything with a lot of presidential offhand comments, and they're not really what he wants based on something. Yep. I'm just getting the impression that you agree that Roosevelt felt that the, there was compelling need to fight Germany at some point. I just don't see the road to war with Germany, right. absent either Japan or a manufactured Greer-like incident. Because as mm-hmm. you pointed out, mm-hmm. public opinion in America was different on a war with Japan than it was with Germany. It mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. You could have had a war with Germany fairly easily mm-hmm. for public opinion. There was just much less support. Yep. This is one of these examples where you know, Roosevelt was ahead of public opinion. He knew right. that Germany was the problem, but I just don't see how you get that yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe his his view was, and I'm speculating, so apologies, is that he saw the U.S. role, you know, absent the attack on Pearl Harbor, as just escalating the extent of its uh, aid to Britain short of declaration of war. Because this, remember, fall of 41 is when they commit to Lend-Lease. So now they're rolling that out, right? And now the, the, the U.S. Navy is becoming increasingly aggressive to protect the convoys. And so maybe he just sees an, an increasingly expansive role for the U.S. to protect Britain short of actually intervening in the war. Um, but he was, you know, I mean, he was very politically aware to something like the Greer incident going wrong because as soon as the Greer incident occurs and he frames it as Germany being aggressive, there's an immediate call for a congressional investigation. And so Roosevelt, if nothing else, is a very smart political animal. And so he calls in, you know, uh, one of his admirals, and says, okay, this is what you have to present to the Congress, and it's basically the full facts. And then, interestingly, once the admiral presents the full facts, there's no backlash. You know, the Congress and the public don't say, wow, we're lied to, let's pull back. They're still on board with increasing the aggressiveness of U.S. Navy policy in the, in the Atlantic. Um, so, 
I think there's good ev I mean, from that alone, I think we can feel pretty confident that he, he certainly learned from the Greer incident that that wasn't the way to go. That wasn't going to work. He wasn't going to be able to sink the Louisitania again or, I don't know, craft another Zimmerman telegram or something to get the public involved in a war. Uh, yeah, let me, these are all good questions. I'm going to take them in, re, in reverse order. So on the, the, this point, um, it's true that we don't formally declare war constitutionally anymore. But the good news, as it were, is that the president, for major uses of force, still seeks congre formal congressional approval. Right? So Obama you know, formally you know, went to Congress, and President, Bu president W. Bush uh, got a formal congressional vote for invading Iraq in 2003. And George H.W. Bush got a formal congressional vote for the invasion of Iraq in uh, 1991. So even though there isn't sort of the constitutionally mandated declaration of war, the good news, in my view, is that there is still at least a modicum of executive deference to the Congress on what I'll, I'll call major uses of force, you know, minor uses of force, like, you know, drone strikes and whatever is a different category, but there are the major uses of force the president still does this. And, I, and legal scholars still say that if, for example, you know, Bush Sr. had not gotten a congressional vote in favor and had still gotten to war, that he risked impeachment. So those constraints still exist. Uh, the second question was who is being deceived, I guess. And you know, in terms of answering that narrow question, you know, the argument is that there's, there's deception of the American public. So it's a story about information and signals between the president and the public. 
So in framing this in kind of a political science-y kind of way, the argument is you're not certain as to how aggressive the adversary is. They could be, you know, aggressive or not very aggressive. And the leader thinks they're aggressive, and the public at the beginning thinks they're not aggressive. Okay? And what the president is doing is using deception to convince the public that they're actually aggressive. So one way you do that is you falsely create an environment in which something happens and it makes it look like the actions taken by the adversary are a credible signal of aggression. Okay? So this is the Gulf of Tonkin incident, where what's happening is the U.S. and South Vietnam are engaging in these provocative actions off the coast of North Vietnam, and North Vietnam reacts, and I'm, and I'm really simplifying a story here, but the way it gets presented is that it was unprovoked aggression. So that's a credible signal of North Vietnamese aggression. The public updates. They falsely think North Vietnam is aggressive, and then they decide to, to go to war. Uh, and then the first question was, you know, how does Roosevelt kind of come around to deciding he needs to take action against Nazi Germany? Is that, is that right? Yeah, and, and the process of realizing that is that they take action against What's that? Well, th this gets back to a little bit this other gentleman's comment earlier. And I, I'm, you know, my, my knowledge of Roosevelt is not as comprehensive as a true historian, which I'm not. So, you know, let me just say that off the bat. But I don't think it's unfair to say that Roosevelt was really much more focused on the national security threat posed by Nazi Germany as opposed to the human rights threat opposed by, by Nazi Germany. Um, that you know, when he was thinking about the kinds of the kind of threat that Nazi Germany was posing, it wasn't like there this threat to all the Jews in Germany. We have to do something. It's more like Woodrow Wilson crafted the League of Nations after World War One as a means of containing Germany, maintaining peace, and that whole structure just you know isn't going to work. Like apparently, Roosevelt and the White House had a portrait of Wilson like right above you know, one of the conference tables, and it was like this shadow literally hanging over him. And he was, you know, desperately concerned not to make the mistakes that Wilson made. Um, and so, you know, like everybody else in the world, you know, as the, you know, the 1930s are going along, he's becoming progressively more concerned about Nazi Germany. And then the fall of France in June of 1940 is this shock to the entire world. I mean, it took Germany four years in World War I to defeat France, and they failed. And they did it in about four weeks in 1940. And so, you know, suddenly it looks like France is gone, the Soviets are a de facto German ally, and Britain is gasping it against the wall and on the brink of being invaded. And so there, Roosevelt is just thinking about this purely as a, like, grand strategy point of view. Like, this is eventually going to pose a direct threat to American national security. There are, you know, sympathizers to Nazi Germany in South America that could be, you know, bases for German aggression and so on and so forth. So my view, and again, I'm no Roosevelt historian, is that, and you may take this as a critique of Roosevelt, you know, which should be, you know, perfectly, you know, fine. And certainly there were a number of people, especially in the State Department, who were deeply unsympathetic to the plight of the Jews, that he was focused on that and not nearly as focused on, on the human rights issues. I mean, certainly, as soon as the Soviet Union entered the war, uh, his rhetoric on the Soviet Union switched substantially. 
you know, talking about, not talking at all about the crimes committed under Stalinist Russia and talking more about what a useful ally the Soviet Union is and, and these kinds of things. All right, unfortunately, I think we're out of time, but please join me in